You're listening to The Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. Serious talk about the sacred book. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Welcome, everyone, to this episode of The Bible for Normal People. A few things before we get started. First, you'll notice that my voice is cracking a lot, and that's not because I'm going through puberty. Um, that's still... <laughs> That's that's not the reason. Uh, yeah, I've just whatever been you say, Jared. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I've just been sick, so I may be. It may not sound like me, but it is me for real. It sounds like an NPR episode. That's it, what yeah, I think. That's, I'll try to do. Hello, everybody. Uh, Let's talk about. So, the secondly, just a reminder about our Patreon campaign. We are getting these transcripts together. We want to keep the podcast ad free, so you can go to patreon.com front slash the Bible for normal people and help us hit our goal of sixteen eleven patrons right in honor of the good old king james right and the true bible the tr- the one and only then <laughs> lastly today is just going to be you and me this yeah, is it for season three it's unbelievable three years since we are just babes in the woods yeah technically it was two years ago that we did the first last episode it's only That's been true. two years it's it's, it's true it's funky the way it's, time works it's weird math time's relative man yeah well it's that time folks it's time for us to talk about microdosing. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. Microdosing can help you get into a relaxed, focused zone easier and stay there longer. It has benefits for workout recovery, sleep, anxiety relief, boosting creativity, and even pain relief. You know, Jared, I have a really good friend of mine who saw that I was taking microdose gummies and she said, can I try some? And so I, I gave her some of the sativa strand and she said it has made such a difference for her at work. And just in general, just feeling more alert and more focused. And it's quite amazing. So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com. Promo code normal people. That's one word. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com. Promo code normal people for 30% off and free shipping. Microdose.com. Promo code normal people. Introducing Bluehost Cloud. Ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. So for that, we are going to focus a little bit on uh, how the Bible actually works. And so this episode is called How, How the Bible Actually Works Works. Get it? Do you get it? Do you get it? It's really so clever. I'm just so happy about that okay. title. But, but we're going to talk about how the Bible actually works, and I'm, I'm just excited about it because, um, you know, Pete wrote this book by that title, but we really want to do a deeper dive into some of these concepts and maybe even respond to some a little bit of the pushback. I think overall it's been really good, but there are some things that we maybe want to think about and talk about a little bit more. Yeah, interact a little bit maybe with some yeah. things. And, you know. But before we do that, maybe just a quick overview, Pete, of kind of the, the main points and then we'll go from there and take a deeper dive on this. You mean for those who haven't memorized the book yet? I know. The, I know. Those pagans. For the seven of you listening, okay. You know, I, 
maybe the first thing just to, to that I can say is like why I wrote it. That's really a big thing behind the scenes. But it it just struck me that you know the the language we typically use in the world of evangelicalism or conservative Christianity or even even in the mainline church uh, about the Bible, it tends to be very positive and. Um, holy, <laughs> you know, it's it's God's word. It's it's God's revealed word. It's for some traditions, it's without error, and it's our faithful guide to practice and to doctrine, and and all those things are wonderful. But the problem that you know I've seen, and many, 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 many other people have seen, is that when you actually read the Bible, you come up against all sorts of challenges to those kinds of ideas. And in fact, there are elements, characteristics of the Bible that have to always be defended against, I guess, to put in their place so that ways of looking at the Bible can remain. And I just thought to myself, you know, these these characteristics, and I have three of them that I that I list in the book, but these characteristics are not just here or there. They seem really baked into the pages from the very beginning of the Bible to the very end. You can't escape them. In fact, they're deeply characteristic of the Bible itself, and I don't think they're remotely negative. I don't think they need to be defended against. I think these are things that actually open windows and doors for us to see, well, how the Bible actually works, if you'll allow me to say that. So, and the three characteristics, I'll just mention them here, are that the Bible is ancient, and it's really old. The Bible is also ambiguous, meaning it's not a clear book in terms, even if the sentences are clear, the implications are not clear. It's it's ambiguous. And the third, which I think for, for the way I think about all this stuff is the most important and theologically fruitful characteristic of the Bible of the three that I'm mentioning here is that the Bible is diverse. And those three things are so much a part of this Bible that we have, and whether it's the Christian Bible that includes the New Testament, or whether it's the Hebrew Bible, which is just, you know, the first part of the Christian Bible, it's still the same. And uh, I, I'd like to think, you know, stepping out of my uh, my pay grade here, but, you know, by faith, I'd like to say that this is a thing that God likes and God intends. And again, I don't know what God intends. I have no earthly idea. I even say that in the book. But I still uh, think that this is a positive thing for the church because these characteristics drive us to work through this Bible and struggle with it and not treat it like a rule book, but treat it as this unending source of wisdom as we engage with it. So maybe you can just on that point about the ambiguity. I often translate into thinking about, I don't know when the Bible's describing something and when it's endorsing it. Would that be a good way to kind of characterize that too? Of like, Uh sometimes we're reading it and I think my tradition would go ahead and say, this is something the Bible's endorsing and there's a lot of baggage to Mm -hmm. what it's saying it is endorsing. And then there's other things that, oh, we don't need to listen to that. It's just describing the ancient world. Right. And, you know, the way it's often put, again, to use the language that inerrantists use, the Bible is inerrant in all that it affirms or teaches. And I've, you know, had discussions with people about this in the past, and that's exactly the case. Well, what does it affirm and what does it teach? I mean, for example, I'm pretty adamant that Genesis chapter 1 teaches and affirms that there are six 24-hour days of creation because there's morning and evening, and I think the implication is very clear. It's intended to tie with the week and then the Sabbath rest that the Israelites have later on in the story. I I think it's 
frankly, I, I mean, in my opinion, it's unambiguous. That's clear to me. It's not ambiguous what they're intending. But, you know, the implications for us, that's another thing, right? So um, it's arbitrary to say, well, it's not teaching or intending to say anything like that. It's got to have some other meaning or that's just part of the ancient world and blah, blah, blah. But once you start, you know, mixing those categories, it's really hard to separate them. And then you sort of like, it's, it's hard to know what's going on in these texts. Would it be fair to say then that it, whether you say it's we all pick and choose or whether you say you put in this phrase, it all depends on what the Bible intends and affirms. That's, that's basically putting a layer of interpretation between us and the Bible and what I'm hearing in your in your book and how you talk about the Bible, Pete, is wisdom is finally acknowledging and being aware and getting really healthy with that layer, yeah. that layer of interpretation and being friends with it and not denying that it's there. Like, that's what I would have grown up with is like, no, mm-hmm. I just read the Bible. I don't interpret it. Right. But because it is ambiguous and it is that diverse, we have to interpret it. It means in language. Mm-hmm. And part of how the Bible actually works is forcing us to acknowledge that interpretive framework. And part of wisdom is looking at that and saying, yeah, there's some really unhealthy ways of interpreting this book, and there's probably healthier ways of interpreting this book. Mm, And it's not always easy to know which are the better ways and which are not, but that's part of, you know, the task of theology and the task of studying the Bible. And this is as old as the Bible itself. But yeah, you know, the whole thing about I don't interpret it, we, we do interpret the Bible, we, and, and even if we don't know we're doing it because of just who we are and when we live and the questions we ask and our backgrounds, that really does affect how we look at texts. And to think of the Bible as this thing that's just there, sort of a neutral thing that we have to engage, you know, we're reading it in English you know, here in America at least, and uh, it's not written in English and translations have a significant interpretive dimension and scholars make decisions about uh, even which texts are better readings of the Old or New Testament and that's that's part of our world too. It's almost like there's ambiguity heaped upon ambiguity and I'd like to think there's a lesson to be learned there for us that, you know, we should not expect a Bible that we can access without being, like you said, Jared, conscious of that fact. And and again, maybe breeding a bit of humility as a result of that, that this is a text we get to engage. We don't control it. And, you know, it's it's not just, again, a, a neutral kind of a putting down of words, the meaning of which is pretty clear and the implications of which are pretty clear. I think the history of Christianity contradicts that pretty quickly because you have so many different opinions on all these things, Jewish and Christian. And maybe that's not the bad news. Maybe that's the good news. You know, maybe that's okay to, you know, people accessing this these texts in different ways and different times and places under different circumstances. So what are, what are some of those lessons we can learn? Because that's something that I think we get quite a bit is, oh, you're tinkering with how people have always read the Bible. And by that, they mean their tradition, and they assume that their tradition is how the Bible has always been read. But mm-hmm. what, are, what are some of the lessons we can take from how the church has really, it grew and, and was thriving in a time when maybe it didn't always just have one singular way of reading it? Yeah, people are always debating it. But yeah, I think, I mean, for me, the important, the really important element here, which I suggested above, is the diversity of the Bible tells us that we're already seeing within the Bible itself, people grappling with 
what the Bible means. And I'm going to even be more specific than that. I actually think at the end of the day, it's not so much what the Bible means, it's grappling with what God is like. And even looking at the different ways in which God is portrayed in the Bible by different authors, it's it's a lesson that we should take in and not say, oh my goodness gracious, here's a problem. We need to reconcile these ways of looking at God. There can't be a major theological difference of agreement between the biblical writers. But the fact is that there, there, there are these disagreements between the writers. And, you know, whenever the Bible was compiled, I'm just sticking with the Old Testament here, whenever that was compiled sometime after the exile or whatever, there were people, learned scribes and, and rabbis who were involved in this process and probably priests as well, who knows. But they could read and they could they understood how you have this diverse development of perspectives on God within this sacred text, all of which were worth keeping and all of which were worth cherishing and all of which were worth, I guess, struggling with as well. And I find that to be, again, a very important lesson for us as we think about the nature of the Bible, the nature of faith. And whether the point of the Bible is simply to give us answers about what God is like, or it's modeling for us what I call in the book, our sacred responsibility to own this process for ourselves, to be intimately knowledgeable with this story, this text, so that we can do a really good job of doing the same thing (laughs) these texts do, which is to what I call in the book, reimagine God, to think about God differently in different contexts and different places. Yeah, so I mean, you, uh, an example or two might not hurt here. Again, for those of you who haven't memorized the book, these are examples here. So, I think one really good example is the book of Jonah, which, uh, you know, Jared's talked about that on a podcast too, but Jonah is the prophet who's sent to preach repentance to the Ninevites, and Nineveh is the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And, of course, he doesn't want to do it, and who blames him? The Assyrians are horrible. They're like the bad ISIS of the day. And and um, now God wants him to go do it, so he runs away. He gets swallowed by a fish. He goes down to Sheol. He comes back up again. He's spit up on the land. And so he goes and preaches repentance to the Ninevites and says, what does he say again? Um, 40 days and, and you're, you'll be destroyed or something like that? Well, no, just, no, not 40, 40 days. days and you, it's, a, it's a play on words there. Right. What is that again? I uh, 40 days and you will – it's destroyed. Yeah, But right. there's a ambiguity in that word. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Jared can't think clearly because he has a cold and his head's full of snot right yeah. now. So, he's not going to – No, but it is – it's it's because <laughs> you can read it in one yeah. of two ways where Jonah can say 40 days and you – like a conditional or it's an unconditional. Oh, okay. All yeah. right. So, yeah. but yeah. So, it's a very short evangelistic sermon. Yeah. And it, that's, it's like that's three important. words right. or something. But the thing is that it works. You know, it works because, you know, the king – repents and the people repent and basically, you know, Assyria functionally becomes a Yahweh nation. And that didn't happen. You see, if that had happened, someone would have heard about it and noticed, hey, do you notice this, the Assyrian Empire converted to a faith in Yahweh? What, what's up with that? You know, so it, and it's, that's a signal, one of the many signals from the book of Jonah that it's not intending to be historical. It's got, there's a theological message, which seems to be God may care about people you don't think that God cares about, even your enemies. 
this is a very Jesus-y, New Testament kind of moment, I think, in, in, in the book of Jonah. But the point is that just two books over, you have the book of Nahum, and Nahum, also Nahum, as is pronounced in Hebrew, this uh, prophet is a three-chapter book, and they are just gloating over the fact that the Assyrians are getting destroyed. And, and God's responsible for it, and at the end, like, everybody claps their hands. I sort of imagine, like, a high five across the world saying, finally, the Assyrians are out of the picture. So, the question is, which is it? And the way this is, I mean, the way I explain it in the book, at least, is that the book of Nahum is an older book. The, town, the city of Nineveh was defeated by a coalition of forces like the Babylonians and the Medes uh, around 612 BCE, and that's it. But Jonah is almost certainly a post-exilic book. It's written after the exile, after the Babylonian captivity. Okay, so what? Well, the so what is that during the captivity, you can imagine, you know, okay, you're carted away to a foreign land. And what happened, you know, about a generation or two later, these captives came back from Babylon. This was in, in 539 BCE. But a lot of them stayed. They didn't come back. They stayed in Babylon. In fact, Babylon became a cultural center for Judaism for about a thousand years after that. They stayed. They liked it. And I can imagine, you know, you're, you're taken captive, you move away, and gee, I hate it here. But then, you know, you say, listen, I just met the neighbors. They're really nice people. And they want us over for dinner. They have something called beer, for heaven's sake. What is that? I mean, we don't have, we don't have that kind of stuff in Israel. So, I can't understand a word they're saying. They got this weird language, but, you know, it's we're getting to know these people and they're sort of nice. And, you know, they want to have a play date with the kids and it's just going to be a great time. So, let's let's do this. You, you, meet, you make friends. And when I was in graduate school, I had a similar experience where – you know, I was told by some of my more conservative Christian friends, like, don't talk to anybody, don't learn anything, just keep your head down, come out safe, you know. But I met people there who didn't believe anything like what I believed, but were just wonderful, wonderful people. I had, I had an experience of meeting the other, and I had to ask myself the question, what does God think about them? Because had I been born in the countries where some of my classmates were born, I wouldn't be Christian. You know, a lot of this is is an accident, frankly, of where I was born, and and uh, you know, I'm thankful for it. But the reality is that I could have been born someplace else. My parents were immigrants. I could have been born in Poland. I don't know what I'd be like right now. You know, so so here you have a situation. I'm learning that maybe my view of what God is like has to expand because of my experiences, and I think that's very much that is exactly what's happening in the Book of Jonah. Jonah, after the Babylonian exile, the book of Jonah, is portraying a view of God that does not agree with the portrayal in Nahum. God is for these enemies of ours. And, and he picks on Assyria. I mean, wh why not pick on the Babylonians? Well, because it's a story. And we're picking the ancient enemies that we've had for centuries upon centuries. And he's making a beautiful theological point. A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different. There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary, where students are prepared for a call to ministry. At Union, you will find a diverse community. You'll find students from different denominations and professors who will listen to you and challenge you. You'll find people who help you find your own path. You'll find a school where financial realities matter. Union offers generous financial aid, and it meets you where you are with three different platforms for learning, residential, 
online, and hybrid. You'll find a world-class faculty who will invest in you, a community long after you graduate that supports you and equips you for service and for leadership. Safwat Marzuk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for All People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener of the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at The Bible for Normal People. It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email admissions at upsem.edu. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online, and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with that, their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever. We got our bushes in and you can tell I don't know what I'm talking about because I just call them bushes. But we got them in last night. And Fast Growing Trees knows what they're called. Exactly. That's the whole point. It comes with this placard that tells you exactly what to do like you were in fifth grade, which is the exact instruction <laughs> level that I needed. And it was very easy to follow. We loved the process. This spring, they have their best deals online up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com, code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. So with that, let's go further with that example, because then for the modern reader, are, we, are you saying now I'm, I'm more of a follower of the way of Jonah than I am a follower of the way of Nahum? Or is there a sense of wisdom in there that sometimes... The way of wisdom is to love and forgive your enemies, and sometimes it's to rejoice at the, you know, I'm just thinking of like ISIS, right. and like these things where terrible things happen, and right. is it kind of that wisdom thing of like, we have now stacked up behind us many people's experiences that we can draw from at appropriate times? Well, for me, I mean, I'm, I would say that personally, I'm more with Jonah in terms of envisioning and imagining a bigger God that I think is is supported very much in the gospel. However, as I'm, I'm very quick to tell my friends too, I, I'm not living in Syria right now, right? So, I'm not living in some beleaguered country that's being attacked by people where my prayer might be, Lord, show up with your armies and, you know, the Lord of hosts, which means armies, mm -hmm. and take care of business. You know, I, I, I cannot say that I would never say that. And you know, like the book of Revelation, it, it, our, our Bible closes with a book that's like that. A beleaguered people want God to, you know, shed a lot of blood against the enemies. Now, maybe that's not, you know, maybe we have to do more thinking, Jared. Maybe part of wisdom, I'm just riffing here, maybe part of wisdom is leaving behind that point of view entirely because I think of like nonviolent resistance where people would rather die. I mean, the American experience with Martin Luther King Jr. and and the impact that that has had, you know, maybe that's the course of wisdom. But that's – I think we're demonstrating the point though, Jared, that it's not really clear 
right? The diversity here is in, is creating an ambiguity that we have to think through theologically and situationally and be careful how we listen to other people as well who have a different perspective on that. And the thing is we're having a God-centered theological discussion in doing that. Mm -hmm. And that feels – maybe for some people that feels new and it feels risky and it feels unfaithful to the Bible. But, you know, I'm thinking of Brad Jersak and some other people we've had on where they say, but what we're getting back to is that the church has been this place for these conversations – even before the Bible was. Yeah, and uh, we do forget that sometimes when, you know, Christians have always believed X about the Bible, and whatever the X is usually isn't true. Uh, We we shouldn't project our own, you know, post-Enlightenment sort of logical analytical strictures on an ancient text, which is essentially Semitic. It's ancient Jewish text. And we shouldn't impose those kinds of regulations and expectations upon a book like that. It seems to be built, designed, if I may put it that way, to generate these kinds of conversations around the topic of what is God like? And again, I think that's that's when you come to the gospel. It's when you're treating things in the Old Testament. Is this a kind of God you can argue with? Or complain with, or is this a kind of God you have to cower in front of and not even open your mouth and not even raise your head? It depends on what text you're reading. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? I think it's a great thing. It's not a bad thing at all because th- those reflect our experiences. You know, people have talked about how Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 present a different God, and I think that's true right at the very beginning of our Bible. Chapter 1 is the sovereign, above-it-all God who speaks into existence. He's sort of a cosmic button pusher and everything falls into place. It's exactly the way it should be. It's perfect. And in Genesis 2, he takes a stroll in the garden. He asks, Adam, where are you? You know, I haven't seen you. You know, and God walks in the garden. And even if that's used somewhat metaphorically, it's still, it's still a different portrayal of God than just the voice speaking up in the heavens. And, you know, God finds things out in in the opening chapters of Genesis. When you get to the flood story, God is he, – he, he regrets, he laments what has happened. That implies a sense of even surprise. I mean, think about that. We, I'm so sorry about that Like, because it caught me off guard. I didn't realize this was going to happen. You know, making humanity is not really that great. I got to – I have to drown everybody. You know, that's what I have to do, which, by the way, is a very ancient conception of God. That's one of the three points I make. But, you know, that's that, that's a portrayal of God there that is not really consistent with the other portrayal of God in Genesis 1. I'm not making this up. People talk about the transcendent God and the imminent God in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. One of the reasons why you have this ambiguity at the beginning is because it's setting up the entire story because you meet this very imminent Human-like God who gets talked out of things, who has a temper that Moses has to calm him down in Genesis 32 and 33. But other times you have a God who even the temple cannot hold – the heavens and the earth can't even hold this God. So, which is it? Is it one or the other? Well, it's both. And sometimes we connect better with one and sometimes we connect better with another. Sometimes we need to hear about one more than the other. And I and I think, Jared, in my opinion – Again, this is a really blanket statement, but if you're listening here, if you haven't fallen asleep yet, you know, which which connects more with you? Is your experience more that you have trouble thinking about God as really imminent and sort of with you and, and, and a part of you and next to you? Or is it easier for us to think of a God who's sort of up there and out there someplace? 
like a platonic God who's just detached from this earth that we live in. I think it's more that. I think more Christians are comfortable with a God who's sort of up there and makes cameo appearances. Well, we need this God of Genesis 2 and Genesis 3 who interacts with us like a character in the story. I mean, that's the incarnation. That's Jesus. That's a concretization of this God that we can talk to and refer to and argue with and, you know, cry with and and all those other kinds of things. So, I, I think the ambiguity, the diversity, all that stuff, I think it's it's fuel for theology. It's fuel for also appropriating the text for ourselves. And, you know, nobody asked me, but I wouldn't have it any other way. Hey, everyone. My name is Dave Gerhardt. I'm from Lidditz, Pennsylvania, and I'm the guy that does all the audio editing for the Bible for Normal People. This podcast is made possible by the generosity of all of our supporters on the Patreon platform. For as little as a dollar a month, you can be part of the group that brings this podcast to normal people everywhere. And as a thanks for your support, there are lots of videos from Pete and Jared, a cool discussion group, and lots of other fun stuff for patrons only. So check it out at patreon.com slash the Bible for normal people. If you've gotten something from this free podcast, please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash the Bible for normal people. And if you're unable to support the show financially, don't worry about it. You can go to iTunes to rate and review the podcast. Keep in mind that five-star reviews really help other people find us. This being the last episode of season three, I'd like to take a moment to thank the team responsible for making this podcast happen each week. So thanks to Shea Box, Reed Lively, Megan Kamick, and of course, Pete and Jared. I'm really proud of the Bible for Normal People, and we couldn't do it without you. Now, back to the podcast. So, the, the, you know, it's it's messy. We, sometimes we want to have our cake and eat it too. We want to have this transcendent God, but the one who is with us, and we don't want it to be messy. But it, it, it kind of the Bible shows us like those all kind of go hand in hand here. Yeah. Um, so, just a, just a, a correction. Uh, you said Moses in Genesis thirty-two, but I think you meant Exodus thirty-two. Right? Oh yes, yeah. Exodus thirty-two. Um, but with so I, I have a, a kind of a broader meta question here then. Because sometimes we say, okay, we'll get in all this, then then how is is God behind this? Because there's this view that God dictated it, and you're saying, well, the Bible is ancient, ambiguous, diverse, and we don't need to think that that makes it any less divine. Like God could easily have made it so that this is the kind of book we have. Why do we assume it has to be contemporary and uh, unanimous and you know mm-hmm. perfect or whatever that whatever that means? So is this is this a question? I guess my question is like, is it just by faith? Like, in what way is God behind any of these writings? Is that just a faith question? Um, yeah, I mean, in a way, yes, but also it's a, it's something that is confirmed by habit and by community and over time. It's not a logical. Here's how I know that this Bible exactly the way it is comes from God, and that's my starting point. And if I don't start there, everything else falls apart. Well. Maybe you have to get to that point, maybe through struggling with the text and also through struggling with voices of the past who have also struggled with this text. You know, because we're part, you know, when, when we start dealing with the Bible, we are a part of a community, not just, not just a synchronic community, not just a community that's right now at the same time as us, but a diachronic community that goes through time. And, of course, not everyone's going to read uh, ancient church or the medieval church or the Reformation church. Uh, that's not the point. But the point is that we are actually 
in this very long conversation, diverse conversation over this text. And to me, that's messy, right? But the messiness for me, I can only speak for myself, and I'll speak for you too, Jared, is a freeing thing. It's not, oh my goodness gracious, now what do we do? It's like, thank goodness I don't have to hold all this stuff together and have this perfect knowledge of this text, which seems set up to not let us have <laughs> that kind of a grasp of it. That's why, I mean, the medieval period of the church, you know, lasting maybe roughly a thousand years, there was a very popular way, the normal way of looking at the Bible was a fourfold method. There were four ways of looking at texts, and there's a literal way, and then there was an allegorical way, which sometimes means talking about Jesus, but sometimes it just means, you know, jumping off the page and going someplace else to see sort of maybe a deeper spiritual meaning. There was a moral meaning, like what does it mean? To me, how, how does this affect how I live? And also, uh, how, how does this, what does this tell me about the whole Christian story that's going to end one day when the world come, comes to an end and God judges everyone? How does that work? And that's, I think that's a beautiful thing. It's not just one meaning, it's multiple meanings. And as far as I'm concerned, the Bible demonstrates that already for us. It's, it's hard to get two authors to agree on a lot of things. What, can you say a little bit more about that? What do you mean it's hard to get two authors to agree on the same thing? Well, I mean, just because there's, there's such diversity in the Bible, you know, and you don't have to look hard for it. That's why it's such a problem in apologetics. It's not hard to find it. You just you, – you, you can't get out of chapter two and you already have a major difference – and how the creator is being portrayed for us in these pages. That's why that book of Bible difficulties is like a thousand pages. <laughs> yeah, how many volumes? But yeah, I, and the thing is that I mean that kind of a a book comes out of a mentality that I think is expecting a certain kind of Bible for philosophical reasons. You know, if God has inspired this book, it needs to act a certain way, right? And C.S. Lewis has a great comment. He um. In his uh, book on the the Psalms, uh, I forgot what the exact title, but somebody out there knows it. But is it till uh, we have faces? No, it's it's a book actually. It's on uh, the Psalms. It says Psalms in the title. Anyway, but he he says, you know, we should never presume upon Scripture that it has to act a certain way, especially if after reading it we see it's not acting that way. You know, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but. Um, Maybe we can put the quote up. I, I yeah. can find it. Yeah, the, we'll put the quote up in the liner notes. But, you know, the, the thing is that it's – we have to be very careful not to impose things on the Bible. All of us do that. I do that. All of us do that. I think we should be at least self-aware of what it is we're doing. And what I choose to highlight in how the Bible actually works, these characteristics of the Bible's antiquity, its ambiguity, and its diversity, I'm – that's my way of trying to do that. And you ask me, how is God behind that? My answer is, I have no earthly idea. I'm a person. I don't know how these things work. I'm just working from the bottom up and saying, this is what I'm seeing here. But I'm doing that from a position of faith, not a position of like, and therefore, God does not exist. I'm not saying that. I, I, I don't, I'm doing this within the context of faith and a faith community and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So, well, you use a, a good, I think, a helpful word when you talk about freedom because it, it, sometimes, you know, you said it comes from a place, these other ways of reading that the Bible has to look a certain way. But sometimes I think there's this ethical dimension when we're we're also afraid of the freedom that it gives, yeah, because then we're we're scared that someone's going to read it wrong. Like, what happens if someone reads the Bible wrong? 
And so it comes from maybe a good, but slash kind of protectionist mindset and that there's a certain freedom, but it is a terrible freedom because like you said, we don't have a choice. We, we have to read it somehow. There is an interpretive framework. So it's kind of this terrible freedom. Like we have the freedom, but we wish we didn't. So we create these constraints mm-hmm. and then we say that's from God. But I think this freedom part is really important. Yeah, that is actually imposing something onto God at that point. We're, we're making God out to be a helicopter parent, making sure that, okay, listen, guys, I really – I can't leave you alone for very long. I don't trust you to figure anything out. So um, here's this book that's going to answer all those questions for you. You just got to be really careful to read it and make sure you follow everything it says. Well, you know, what's the – experience many people have. Yeah, I tried that. I tried reading it and following what it said. And I don't know what to do anymore because I don't want to do most of the stuff that it says to do. And some of it contradicts other stuff. So what do you do? It's like, you know, Rachel Held Evans's book, Year of Biblical Womanhood. And, and she tried to live according to the biblical dictates of what it means to be, quote, a woman. Although they aren't actually biblical dictates. They're biblical dictates read literally. That That's really what she was after. But, but you know, the, the Bible is just too diverse for um, being smushed like this into sort of this safe thing and then saying God wants us to have this safe thing. Because good parents, they don't protect their children in ways that are unhealthy for them. You do protect your children from I – mean, the analogy breaks down at some point, but you, you, you're going to hold your hand, kid's hand when you cross the street if they're two years old. Right? I was just with my granddaughter and I had to do that. Right? I'm not going to let her go. There was – just a, as a, a quick story, there was at one point where um, little Lila, who's just over two, had her finger pinched inside a little bucket where there was a toy in it. And she started like whimpering and crying and she looked at her mom, my daughter Liz – who didn't come rushing over to help her with the bucket. She left her there and said, oh, Lila, are you okay? Oh, what's wrong? And Lila then sort of got up the strength to sort of get up from where she was and walk over calmly to Liz. And then Liz helped her with, you know, relieving the pain on her little finger. And to me, that was just, to me, that was a beautiful picture of what it means, I think, to parent well that lets children experience things because they grow from those experiences. Well, the only thing I think is, you know, a lot of these analogies too, I think we do ourselves a disservice by this dominant metaphor of God being a parent and us being children. Mm -hmm. Because I do think in a lot of traditions, we build theological systems for children. Yeah. And then we don't allow people to really grow up. Like what, what is the Christianity? Because for me, the, the de- natural development of kids grows from rules to wisdom. Like what's appropriate for a six-year-old to allow or not allow them to do is very different than what's appropriate for a 16-year-old and different than what's appropriate for a 28-year-old. Mm-hmm. And you would hope like sort of the natural development is you moving away from dictating and having rules and consequences to wisdom of mm-hmm. what's a better decision or a worse decision for you. And as a parent, you get less and less control. But if we have whole theological systems that keep us as children and God's always the parent and we're still little children, if we have that kind of baked into the system, then it makes sense that we would see the Bible this way. It makes sense that we'd have churches set up this way. It makes sense that we would have these. So what does it look like to have a Christianity where we're adults? Yeah. So we're, we're, we're actually preparing our children for adulthood. Right. Right. And not. And maybe God is preparing us for adulthood. Well, that's just it. That's the analogy. And, 
you know, my many, not many, but a significant number of my students where I teach, they actually struggle with that because we talk about things in, in our introductory Bible class that they're not really daring things. It's just, have you noticed Matthew and Mark tell this story differently? Well, people have thought about why that might be the case. And students are, are they're enlivened by that. Believe it or not, I mean, they're like, oh, my goodness gracious, this is nice and complicated. But the question is, why didn't anybody ever tell me this? And I remember when I was in graduate school, John Levinson, who was, who's been on this podcast too, but he, he said, you know, there is no adult who has a seven-year-old knowledge of math. There is no adult that has a seven-year-old seven knowledge on, well, frankly, anything. But for some reason, when it comes to religion, and he's talking about his Judaism too, for some reason, when it comes to religion, it's a good idea to keep children safe and protected where they don't have to think for themselves. I think that – I don't think God is out to dehumanize us and to keep us just simple people who are afraid to ask questions or afraid to risk. I think, you know, this whole – thing about growing in the faith, it involves risk and pain and suffering, right? And, and I think just dealing with the Bible is a, is a microcosm of, of the whole spiritual journey because all those things are there. All, there are biblical characters that, that experience every emotion under the sun, including being sick and tired of God, and it's all there. And it's modeling for us something that I think, Jared, you were saying before, wisdom is really what it's modeling for us, that you cannot use this book as a safety net for your life. It's going to push you out of the nest, so to speak, and you have to explore and you have to take risks and you have to figure things out. And that sounds really like secular advice. You mean don't go to the Bible for a verse? Is exactly what I mean. Don't go to the Bible for, for a verse. Use the brain that we've been blessed with and think about it with humility and not with pride. And sensing that that very act, the presence of God is there with you as you're doing that. But how will I know if I get the right answer? You won't. Right. Right? And that's that's life, I think, at that point. And And – I think a tolerance for ambiguity is a very important lesson for all of us to learn. And for me, I mean, I don't like, I would love to have a lot of things cleared up, quite frankly, but I don't. And learning to deal with the ambiguity, I think, forces you into a position of dependence on God in a good way, in a healthy way of, of faith and trusting God and not feeling like I can trust God up to a point, but eventually I need it in writing so I can see it in front of me that will actually give me the answers to this. I think the entire Bible is set up to discourage that kind of mentality, mm-hmm. which is the irony. It's – I don't think what I'm doing in this book is unbiblical. I think it's deeply biblical. And I think other ways are actually unbiblical even though they claim to be based on the Bible and, you know, it's, it's inerrant teachings or, or what God wants for us by giving us this book, you know. Um, yeah, anyway. So you mentioned we can't really ever get to certainty, but I think there is some uh, comfort in knowing that we're standing on the shoulders of this great tradition where some of the things you're talking about actually has been practiced. So, you mm-hmm. know, are there some examples that you might have to help us kind of root ourselves in that? Yeah. I mean, in a way, just put your finger down anywhere in church history and you have people who I think are reimagining God for their context and, and owning that responsibility. And for me, the clearest early example is, for one thing, the gospel itself. 
I think the New Testament is reimagining God, just as Judaism had been doing before the gospel came around. This isn't the first time it's happened, but when you align the Creator and uh, the Father of, uh, well, the the Creator and the one who chose Abraham to be the Father of Israel, when you align this one with the shame of the cross, and the Messiah is someone who dies for some reason. I mean, that's that is very that's a different way of thinking about god that is that's unique i would say and that was driven by the experiences of the people who were writing the bible that was their experience of jesus and so they wrote about jesus that way and and god is portrayed in ways that are sometimes very similar to the old testament sometimes not similar at all and which is an example of this diversity within the bible now including the christian bible but it's not a matter of Old Testament versus New Testament. It's a matter of looking at some of these developments about how God is portrayed within the Old Testament and then seeing the New Testament maybe picking up some of those trajectories, but also doing some things that are really fresh and different and sometimes difficult to understand how, where did this come from? I mean, and I think the biblical New Testament writers are grappling with that stuff too. Like, how do we wrap our arms around a crucified and risen Savior? It doesn't, there's no, there's no exegetical hermeneutical handbook to go to, to understand how this works. And so they, they, they wrote what they wrote. But, you know, just right after that, the early church moved from a very Semitic and I would say apocalyptic mindset, like things are going to end pretty soon, to a more philosophical and Greco-Roman mindset. And that's what gives us things like the church creeds, where they were arguing about theology because, you know, the kingdom of God came and it's sort of here, but it's not really here fully because Jesus hasn't come back and the end hasn't come. And, and so we're sort of in this holding pattern, you know, like uh, John Caputo, right? The philosopher says the church is plan B. Right. It's, and, and, and plan B means, okay, we're going to be here for a while. How do we make sense of what it means to be a follower of Jesus where the story went a certain way? How do we live that story here? And, and in the early church, creeds came out of that. There were important things to sort of talk about philosophically about the nature of God and the nature of uh, Jesus and the church. And all that's fine. It's wonderful. It's not the high watermark of the history of the church, but it's it's a moment that reflects the time and places, and then, you know, the, pick your guy. You know, Luther did what he did because of his setting. He wasn't reproducing what the Bible said. He was engaging it and reinterpreting it, quite frankly. Yeah, I was thinking even <clears throat> if you think about that time of the Reformers and how much jurisprudence and thinking about law yes. was coming into the culture. Yeah. And it's no surprise that a lot of these guys are doing theology in that context. And also, they're they're— the energy that was there for, for Calvin and other reformers to really know your Greek and Hebrew and get back to the original sources, well, that was not a major emphasis at all in the medieval period. It, for some it was, but you don't usually go around and learn Hebrew so you can mm -hmm. read the Old Testament better. But that, that actually came out of the culture. Yes. That exactly. was the Renaissance that right. had Fontes back to the sources. Right. So that could have been seen as like a pagan influence. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and and you can talk. I about think actually Erasmus got in trouble. for yes, that. Yes, he did get in trouble for that, but he was actually a hero at the end of the day. So, um, but yeah, I mean, it's all sorts of examples like that. In other words, the point is that we can go to almost any place in the history of the church, and any place in the church right now globally, and we can see people appropriating the story 
in different ways depending on their experience. And we're back to Richard Rohr and the analogy we use five times every episode, which is, you know, there's a tricycle and, and the front wheel is experience and the back two wheels are tradition and scripture. It's experience that actually drives our theological thinking. That's a scary thing. And I know that. I don't know how else to explain this stuff, you know, and, and maybe God is in our midst and values that we're doing the best that we can and it's, it's going to be okay. I think the Bible models that for us. Right. Yep. Well, on that note, I think we'll bring this to a close. What do you think, Jared? I think it's time. How's your throat doing? It's, it's just doing so great. Sing a little song for it's, us right now. I mean, it's fabulous right now. I can hear that. Yeah. Anyway, so. We just have a whole <laughs> ASMR. You know that thing on YouTube? No, what's that? Where people like whisper and they like touch like packaging and stuff and it gives you the tingly feelings i have no idea what you're talking about oh, man i need to go on look the, it up ASMR. go on the google net or something yeah. and figure that one out so but they just they whisper and they like open packages of like macbooks and it creates this tingling sensation for people really and they'll just like listen to it for a long time okay that's crazy so we'll just have to do a whole episode with that what a horrible world we live in but <laughs> anyway so yeah okay maybe, maybe we should stop the episode so i can go on and do that stuff do or whatever yeah. okay so anyway thanks again for listening folks and uh this is the end of the season for us right jared this yep. is the end of season three mm-hmm. and it, really it's gone so quickly these three seasons it feels like we just started yesterday i mean it just it's been great wonderful thankful to all of you for listening and uh we'll be back after a break we always take a little Mm -hmm. break that goes about six weeks right somewhere in there and we'll see you for season four season four but in the meantime like really take time to just process everything you've learned this year yeah and and get back to us there'll be a test in february so and also don't forget our campaign you know we mentioned that the patreon campaign that's we really want to launch this stuff because we think we know that a lot of people would like it, you know, the transcripts and that helps them a lot. So we we want to do that too. So, all right, we'll see you guys Our in folks. a little while. Thanks for everything. See ya. Dave, I just want you to know I'm still sick, so I'm going to try to minimize nose blowing and coughing, but. Just make them sound normal, David. That's all. Just yeah. you know, mm-hmm. you must have a button you can push—the unsick button or something like that. Yeah, well, not too much because I kind of like the deepness. Yeah, I feel that like more of a radio personality. NPR. So, yeah. Right. Now coming to you from WNYC. <laughs> I shouldn't have hit record yet. Dave's rolling his eyes because he knows all this already, yeah. and we are like, uh, we are a campaign. <laughs> uh, it's been at least. Okay, George. Uh, it's been at least 12 hours since ah. we did this. I'm glad we started early because we just frittered away 11 minutes. I know. <laughs> it sounds like I'm going to have like Tourette's or something. No, hopefully, hopefully, <laughs> hopefully it'll make sense yeah. in a few minutes what mm-hmm. we're talking about here. Well, we'll see. We, we can stop, right? That was everything. That's it, yeah. Okay.